Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled The Simplicist. We as Christians seem to be rather adept at fleeing from the ditch on one side of the road right into the ditch on the other side. We are called to walk the narrow way of holiness, yet to do so is to be held in derision by all the folks that have made their abode in both the left and right hand ditches. But oh, how sweet to walk in the pilgrim way of simplicity in Christ Jesus. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Simplitist. It's sort of an awkward title, isn't it? Hopefully it has meaning as we begin to move through, because to describe what I'm about to describe, I had to come up with some way of describing it. So we're going to call it the Simplitist, and I have a reason for that. But I have a subtitle with this one, Approaching Scripture with Child Wonder. And I hope that that grabs your soul's attentions as we talk today, and that if you crave one thing, it's Jesus Christ, and to see Jesus Christ the way a little child would see him. And to never lose that, to lose the wonder. Remember when you were a child and you would know that maybe it's Christmas morning, the next morning, you're going to sleep that night before, there's a wonder. It's a child wonder, you can call it. And then as you get older, and I don't know if the term would be fogier, you know, like an old fogey. I don't know if you can get fogier. But you get sort of mature in your ways. Well, suddenly Christmas loses its wonder and it loses its sparkle. And suddenly it's just a day, and it's it's a nice day, don't get us wrong, it's sweet and pleasant and the food is good, but you lose some of that sparkle of it. Well, how many of us is that exactly what happens with Jesus Christ? Some of us never even had the wonder. You've never had the wonder and the awe, the trembling in your soul of beholding the living God. Oh, you're missing out, that's what it's all about. It's knowing him. It's being found in him. It's actually having a relationship with the king of all kings. All right, that's just a little warm-up. So, Eric. So, Eric, are you a Calvinist? One of the most common questions. I get asked, why in the world everyone is so intrigued by if I'm a Calvinist or not is a really interesting question. And what this has to do with my title that I just gave you is another interesting question. However, it has a lot to do with it. I remember Paul Washer being asked that question. And his answer was, I would call myself a five-point Spurgeonist. (laughs) Well, you guys know who C.T. Studd is? If you don't, you'll have to figure it out this semester. I would call myself a five-point stud. The simplitist. The simplitist would be my answer. No, I I wouldn't call myself a Calvinist. Wouldn't call myself an Arminianist. I'd call myself a simplitist. And you could say, what in the world's that? Well, I called the whole message this, so you can figure it out. I'm gonna lay it out for you exactly what I believe. The simplitist. Adopting the child's approach to scripture. You see, when you try and adopt the mature man's approach to Scripture, oftentimes you will stumble over the most basic, most rudimentary dimensions of what God wants to grow up in your soul. And you oftentimes, as quickly as you start that process, lose the very essence of Christianity. My great passion in life is to maintain the purity of a single-eyed focus on the person of Jesus Christ. 
Here's the scripture for the simplest. This is Paul talking. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So the word simplicity in the Greek would be defined as a singularity of focus. There is a very narrow lens, if you will, but it's not narrow-mindedness. It's a very sharp and focused worldview. Jesus is what matters. Jesus is the answer to every one of your questions. Jesus is the substance of every thought you have. Jesus is the purpose of why you're living in that moment. Jesus is the reason you're thriving in that moment. Jesus is the reason you're leaping in every moment. Jesus. I know it sounds overly simplistic, but that's the point of a simplitist. A simplitist believes that God has made, though his world is complex and though the doctrinal nuance in the Bible is extremely deep and complex, and you'll never troll the depths of it. That which matters can be understood by a child. That which is the forefront, that which is the center, can be understood, even by the most simple minds. So... I might not be a five-point Calvinist. I might not be a five-point Arminianist. What am I? I'm a five-point simplitist. Let me give you the five points. I would like to first enunciate point one. Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Now... For those of you that are Calvinists, those of you that are Arminius are looking at me like, this guy is missing reality. <laughs> so let's continue. A five-point simplitist with a bit more specificity. Without Jesus, I'm doomed. Jesus and Jesus only is able to save. Not only is Jesus able to save, but he desires to save. I don't choose Jesus, but Jesus has chosen me. Not only is Jesus able to save and desires to save, but when Jesus saves me, he is able also to keep me from falling. You just heard a five-point simplitist. And yet the whole focus is Jesus. I need Jesus because without Jesus, I have nothing. But Jesus wants me too. That's the most amazing thing. It's not that I want him. It's that he wanted me first. And he has done a work in me that I actually want him. And he desires to save me, and he's able to save me. And when he saves me, he's able to keep me from falling. (sighs) And then all the briar patches of the word of God suddenly no longer are a hindrance to me staying focused on what matters. A five-point complicator. Do you believe in depravity or total depravity? Well, I believe that without Jesus, I'm doomed. Are you doomed or totally doomed? I'm doomed. And there's no other salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Do you believe in conditional election or unconditional election? I believe that Jesus and Jesus only is able to save me. Do you believe in general atonement or limited atonement? Not only is Jesus able to save, but he desires to save. You see, to someone who is caught up in the briar patches of this issue, which has divided the church for centuries upon centuries, they don't like my answers. They're too simple. Well, no, Eric, you're missing the point here. No, I'm not missing the point. The point is Jesus. 
He is salvation. Salvation is a person, not a program, not a theology. It is a person. Salvation is wrapped up in Jesus. And if you lose the centrality of that focus, you miss the whole kitten caboodle. What do you think the enemy's doing? He's trying to get the church distracted to make it something other than the simplicity that is in Christ. Number four, do you believe in forsakable grace or irresistible grace? Well, I believe I don't choose Jesus, but Jesus has chosen me. Do you believe that there is security in abiding or unconditional eternal security? Not only is Jesus able to save and desires to save, but when he saves me, he is also able to keep me from falling. So let's move on. Advice from the major. Major Ian Thomas. Some of you have heard this story. Uh, I remember... Annie went to Ravencrest. Major Ian Thomas is one of my heroes, and he actually has, uh, he used to live up in Estes Park, and before he passed on a few years ago, it was, I think it was, might have even been before Ellerslie started, I had a chance with Leslie and with Annie to go up and have tea with the major and his wife, and it was just a very special memory for me, because I'd always prayed that I'd had a, ch- had a chance, that I would have a chance to sit down with Richard Wormbrandt before he died, and with Leonard Ravenhill. I prayed very seriously about that. God, I just want to see it. I want to see a true man of God in the flesh. I don't want to just read the books. And so what happens? They both die. And that's the summary of my life. It's like, Eric, are you willing to believe even if you haven't seen? Yes, because the Bible says, blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. I believe. I believe that what God has done in history past, he intends to do in this generation. But I did get tea with the major. And I remember I had one of those moments as a young guy because... I'm sensitive to the major's position, and I understand it from a certain level, and so I don't want to blister him with questions. I don't want to just sort of fawn over him. So I'm trying to act all mature and and talking with him and act all put together. But I had a question, and I figured I had to at least ask one question so in the years to come during a sermon I could say, and I asked the major a question. (laughs) So I did, and I had my one question. It was some question about the complexities of where things are going in the church today and how to deal with this uh, emerging dogma that is coming and sweeping through the conservative movement today. It was more specific than that. But it was somewhat of a challenging question. So this would be fascinating to see how he handles it. You know what his answer was? His answer was Jesus. He looked at me straight in the face and he said, Jesus. Uh, All right. Thank you. (laughs) The major was a simpletist, obviously. Probably a lot better one than I was, especially at that time. But you know what? That is rung in my head over and over because I know that is the truth. But I want to have a more complex answer than that, and so do you. As I go through this and I say the answer is Jesus, you go, well, yes, I understand that, Eric. And I go, no, I don't think you do. I don't think you understand that the simplicity that is in Christ is actually your answer. You are looking for complexity, but the answer is actually in a person. This person isn't just a historical figure. It's not just Napoleon. The answer is Napoleon. And you're like, great. It's a person who ever lives to make intercession for you. A person who will save you to the uttermost. He is active and alive. Didn't you ever read that part after the cross? He lives. This one, this person, is in a position to help you. 
and desires to help you, and get this, is able to help you. So whatever circumstance you're in, the answer is simply Jesus. The loss of simple beauty. C.S. Lewis, and I had to paraphrase this because I couldn't actually find the, the quote. I used to quote this years ago when we would start out speaking on relationships with the opposite sex. So Leslie and I would get up in front of a crowd, and I'd oftentimes start with this quote. So here we are dealing with a man who's one of the most brilliant men of his generation, has a doctoral degree in literature, and he says, it was a tragedy when literature became an academic subject. What? What a strange thing. He wouldn't even have his degree if it wasn't an academic subject. But his point was, and I think most of you could probably catch it, literature is not meant to be broken into its parts and studied. It's meant to be walked through with child wonder. You see, you're intending to experience this book and not just break it down into its parts. But when you start breaking literature down into its parts, something that was meant to be enjoyed, you actually lose its whole purpose. And as an author, if I wrote a novel and I set it before you that was meant to move you and inspire you to something, and you broke it up and said, what do you think his theme is? What do you think his, you know, the foreshadowing this was leading to? You oftentimes can miss the very essence of the purpose. So I have a quote of my own. We'll, we'll say that we couldn't track down E.W. Ludi and get the exact quote, so I had to paraphrase this one too. It is a tragedy when Jesus Christ becomes an academic subject. I want you to think about that. It is a tragedy when Jesus Christ becomes an academic subject. By the way, I'm not against theology or good theology. But if you're a theologian and you miss out on Jesus, who is salvation? Salvation isn't a plan. It isn't just some formula. It's a person. So you could study salvation, but what are you going to get as your end conclusion? Facts? Data? Could be correct. But what do you have as your end conclusion? Facts. I want to have a person when it's all said and done. I don't want to just have the right thinking. I want to have the right guy. I want Jesus. He's the one that saves me, not my mental notions. Jesus. Spurning the bridegroom while loving, him, while loving everything about him. So this is just a little mental picture I sort of drew up for us. And I probably should act it out. This should probably be a little miniature play, but... It'd be sort of awkward. (laughs) What is lost when truth no longer is a person, but rather a collection of facts to be inspected and or questioned? What if I approached the humble, gentle, holy, merciful Savior? Okay, so you have to sort of imagine. Let's see, I should probably do it this way, since I'm reading this way. So here's the bridegroom, and he's standing here. If you could see him, he has his arms out wide, big smile on his face, gleam in his eyes because he desires that intimate fellowship with you. So he opens up his arms to me. What if I approach the humble, gentle, holy, merciful Savior, his arms outstretched to embrace me and to draw me near in fellowship and embrace, but instead of entering into his arms and knowing him as a person, as a friend, as a bridegroom, and as a Lord, I stop about three feet from him and begin to stare. So he has his arms open wide to me, but I approach and stop about three feet away, and I start looking him over. Hmm, I say to myself, so this is Jesus. I then proceed to take out a handy little notebook that I keep for just such occasions, thumb click the top of my writing pen, lick my lips, and then begin to scribble down data that I'm observing. Hmm, medium height. I write down in my notebook, brown hair, brown beard, nicely trimmed. (laughs) 
laughing blue eyes, bright, big smile. What's that? He seems to be saying something. I can't quite make it out. It sounds like, put down your pad of paper, Eric, and just come to me. Note, he surprisingly doesn't have an accent. Size 13 shoe, strong athletic build, olive skin. There he goes again, talking. He's saying something akin to, seek to know me, Eric, not just details about me. Note, it's fascinating that his voice is clear, but his meaning is difficult to understand. Another note to self, study Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek so that I can figure out what he is saying. He probably is saying something extremely mysterious. His clothing is undoubtedly kingly. His body from the waist down was a flame of fire, so I can't quite make out the colors of his, or, his, or his chosen clothing style. His whole upper body is shrouded in a rainbow. Oh, he's talking again. Hmm. That's interesting. When his mouth moves, the rainbow about him doesn't move at all. He's still talking, and I'm just absolutely mystified in watching the glimmer of his gold embroidery as his chest heaves. Okay, now he's finally stopped talking. Hmm, that's odd. His eyes are no longer laughing. In fact, there are tears in them that appear very similar to human tears. Note to self, check to see if it is theologically possible for Jesus to have tears before publishing these observations. All in all, there is a lot of interesting data here to ponder. Note, I'm disconcerted over the fact that Billy Bob last week declared that Jesus wears five crowns on his head because I count six. How dare he diminish the sovereignty of God? Well, back to the lab. Maybe I can make this a regular field trip to come and observe and figure out all that is to be known about Jesus Christ. I I don't know if you got the message in that. I feel very strongly about this. You see, there's a simple rule of thumb in Christianity. You focus on Jesus, and you do know what color his hair is. You do, would know that his beard is nicely trimmed. You would know all that you need to know about him. Don't worry about that. But if all you focus on is the data, you will never know him. And in the end, that means a lot. Chrissy's thought. So Chrissy's my sister. She had a thought. And she expressed it, and it stuck, stuck deeply in me. Eric, you could speak the truth, but if you don't speak the truth the way that Jesus would speak it, you are doing more harm than good. It's not a fascinating thought, and I, I pondered it for years, literally, of my life. So what you're saying is that I could speak truth. In other words, I could have the right ideas. They could be accurate with the biblical record. But if I do not speak those ideas the way that Jesus would speak them, I actually do harm? Why is that? It's because truth is a person. It's not a concept. It's not data. It's a person. So if you extract the person of Jesus from the truth of Jesus, you actually do devastating harm to this world. You must have the person. And when you have the person, guess what? You also get the data. I do not struggle in my life for data. You can say, you're not going to know what color beard he has, Eric, if you make him your focus. You know what? If you hang around someone, you'll just know those things. How do you know it? Because you're spending all your time fixating on it? No, because you're around him. You know what needs to be known about the people you love. I know what needs to be known about my wife. I know what needs to be known about my children. Why? Because I love them. I spend my life on them. I do study them, yes, but I study them as a person, not as a heap of facts. 
So when are the, when's their birthday? Mm-hmm. When did they lose their first tooth? Fascinating. <laughs> you could study the truth, but if you don't study the truth as if it is in fact a person named Jesus, you are doing more harm than good. You have a Bible. You could study it. And it's the truth. However, the truth is a person. So if you don't study the Bible as if it is, in fact, the revelation of a person, then you'll end up doing more harm than good. It's quite a statement I just made there. The danger of demoting the king and putting, I have a little subtitle, and putting your intellect above him. To examine Jesus and the work of Jesus without the person of Jesus being heeded, yielded to, obeyed, adored, worshipped, loved, and cherished, is to remove in your heart the godness of Jesus from Jesus and to trample upon his glory. It's like assessing a basketball player in the locker room and coming to a decision on his ability, his prowess on the court without ever sitting in the stands and watching him play the game. What a strange thing. You could talk to the guy, you could know every detail about him, but have you ever seen him play his game? Have you ever allowed him to do what he does? It's like assessing a plate of food as a critic and writing an article in favor or against based on staring at it intently for seven hours, smelling it, and pushing the food around to see how it jiggles without ever actually sticking a fork full of it into your mouth and tasting and seeing that the food is good. It's like being married in certificate only, having a picture of your spouse, knowing all the factual data about them, but never actually sharing your life with theirs. What a strange marriage that would be. You know the kind of marriage that you dream of? It's not that. What kind of marriage does Jesus dream of? You see, we're the bride of Christ. What kind of relationship does he expect from us? Does he just want to know his, the anniversary date and just get a card in the mail? You see, he doesn't want us just to know data about him. He wants us to know him. Christianity, like marriage, is personal. If your Christianity is not personal, something's wrong with your Christianity. The simplest's aim. So there's four things. To maintain the child wonder of the cross. To forever keep the soul-stirring awe of the incarnation in view. To never lose the holy trembling towards the word of God. And yet to grow up unto a full maturity of Christ-like radiance. So you'll notice I said two different things. To maintain a childlike wonder at the same time to grow up unto a full maturity. Does that sound like a contradiction? How can one simultaneously be ever childlike and yet constantly growing up unto a full maturity? Can one be young and old at the same time? That's a good question. It's a really interesting question. So are we supposed to start out as children and then transition into a mature thought life and you know, have these things all figured out? That's an interesting thought. Basic rule of thumb for Christianity. The more childlike you get in your faith, the more mature you become in living out your faith. The more childlike you become in your faith, the more mature you become in living out that faith. Because faith, when it's growing, is growing more childlike. You believe it more clearly, with less doubt and encumbrance. You say, my God said it, he can't lie. However, as you have a more clear and childlike faith, Your living out of it is refined and honed by the Spirit of God, and you grow up unto a full maturity. You do put childish ways behind you, and you do become mature in the faith, which is a childlike faith. 
And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then let's look at what would seem like a contradictory statement. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, says Paul, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children. And so we could have the notion that we're supposed to cast off our child wonder, and we're supposed to grow up. I mean, come on. We're all, we understand how this works in life. You can't just always be a child. Well, you should always maintain a childlikeness of spirit, though your practical life is growing more mature in its application of the truth that you now know. So we must henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. This is a little excerpt from George Mueller's Biography written by Arthur T. Pearson. It's extremely powerful. God gave George Mueller from the outset a very simple childlike disposition toward himself. If you don't know who George Mueller is, hopefully this semester you'll begin to figure that out. His life was supernatural. His entire calling, if you could define it, was to demonstrate to his generation that the God of the Bible still lives. And he put all his confidence in God. He didn't ever take his needs before men. He always took his needs before the throne of grace. And God supplied every time for every one of his needs. And he was caring for a thousand orphans at times. And he literally would have no food, but he knew God would always provide. So they'd literally set the table for the orphans and say, God will supply the food. And what happens? Well, one of the stories, there's a dairy truck outside that breaks down. And so they were going to lose all the milk and cheese. It was just going to go bad. And so they ran to the nearest spot, which was the orphanage, right there, and knocked on the door and said, could you have any use of milk and cheese? And they bring it right in and set it on the table. This is how they lived. The entire existence of this man was supernatural all through. So God gave George Mueller from the outset a very simple childlike disposition toward himself. In many things, he was in knowledge and in strength to outgrow childhood and become a man. For it marks immaturity when we err through ignorance and are overcome through weakness. But in faith and in the filial spirit, he always continued to be a little child. Mr. J. Hudson Taylor well reminds us that while in nature the normal order of growth is from childhood to manhood and so to maturity, in grace, listen to this, in grace the true development is perpetually backward toward the cradle. We must become and continue as little children, not losing but rather gaining childlikeness of spirit. The disciple's maturest manhood is only the perfection of his childhood. Listen to this final statement. George Mueller was never so really, truly, fully a little child in all his relations to his father as when in the 93rd year of his age. He became more and more and more childlike. And when he was 93 in his final year, he was actually more childlike in his faith than he'd ever been. Andrew Murray writes on the same topic, and it says, The wise and prudent are the men who are conscious and confident of their power of mind and reason to aid them in their pursuit of divine knowledge. The babes are those whose chief work is not the mind in its power, but the heart in its disposition. With the wise and prudent, head knowledge is the first thing. From them, God hides the spiritual meaning of the very thing they think they understand. With the babes... 
Not the head and its knowledge, but the heart and feeling. The sense of humility, love and trust is the first thing. And to them, God reveals in their inner life and experience the very thing they know they cannot understand. We come to God and we say, I can't understand this. It's a mystery. And he says, I understand that, but I love to reveal my mysteries unto little children. And so guess who gets the mysteries of the Bible? The child. The one who approaches scripture and says, I can't understand all this. My mind isn't sufficient to match the mind of God. As opposed to being the wise and the prudent saying, God's mind is not all that it's cracked up to be. Puts themselves above God's mind and critiques his word. Instead, the child comes underneath it and says, God, you're too big for me. I can't possibly comprehend all this. So we submit our mind unto him. And what does he give us? Well, he gives us the mind of Christ. And so suddenly the little child has the mind of Christ. Is there anything hidden from the little child? No. All mystery, all understanding, all knowledge is revealed unto who? The little child. Not to the wise and the prudent. Are we supposed to be wise and prudent? Yes. How do we become wise and prudent? By becoming a little child. So, all evangelical Christians believe in regeneration. How few believe that when a man is born of God, a babe-like dependence on God for all teaching and strength ought to be his chief characteristic. Do we ever think that? A babe-like dependence upon Christ should be our chief characteristic. Oh, they're a Christian. They have a babe-like dependence upon Jesus Christ. The first and chief mark of being a child of God, being like Jesus Christ, is an absolute dependence upon God for every blessing and especially for any real knowledge of spiritual things. The first disposition needed for receiving that revelation is a babe-like spirit. The Simplicists Code. Believe the scriptures with child wonder. So as you're approaching scripture, this is what you're going to learn at Ellerslie. Believe the scriptures with child wonder. Whoa, God said it. This is his word. He knows what he's talking about. As a child, you say, all right, I agree with God. You don't try and outthink it. You don't stumble over it because, well, these are complicated things, mysteries. You know, I have to know a lot more to be able to come to this text. No, you have Jesus to come to that text. You know who wrote the scriptures? The Holy Spirit took from the word, carried along men in this world, and the scriptures were written. It's the word of God, but it's Jesus. It's that which the Spirit took from Jesus. And then Jesus steps onto the stage of time and literally becomes the word of God in text. He becomes it in person. He fleshes it out. and He's the word of God made flesh. And so when you are studying the word of God in text, and you actually begin to realize that you have the very one who inspired the text in the first place as your personal teacher and counselor, you know what? I don't think you should melt in that situation and panic and say, I can't understand this. Well, I know someone who can. It's the very one who wrote it. You don't even need to go to the local pastor down the way. You go to the Spirit of God and say, God, you wrote this. And with a childlike trust, you come before him and say, begin to teach me how to rightly handle and divide this word. That I would bring glory to your name in and through how I receive it, obey it, live it, and preach it. Number two, study the scriptures with knowing Jesus as the primary end. Why do you study scriptures? To know facts, to know knowledge, to understand theology and doctrine. Why do you study scripture? To know Jesus. That's why you study it. Why am I married? Why do I spend time with my wife? So I can know facts about her? No, so I can know her. It's the relationship that drives a marriage, not the facts and the details about the relationship or the person. 
Number three, speak the scriptures with the utter simplicity of the suffering church. I'm going to come back to that one. But how we oftentimes in America will speak the scriptures is we speak it very complicated. We speak it with a highfalutin language, words that are too big for the typical person to understand. And as a result, the typical person doesn't understand it. Instead, what we should do is speak it the way the suffering church would do it, as if they're dying the next minute. What would they be talking about? As if they're in prison, what would they be sharing one amongst the other? That's what we live for. We live for Jesus. And the way they are living is far more real to Christian history than what we have in America. Number four, and live the scriptures with the inextinguishable power of ever-growing grace. So I want to take a closer look at Simplicist's Code number three. Speak the scriptures with the utter simplicity of the suffering church. So the question for us is this, what matters most? One of the things when you begin to study scriptures, see, a conservative, it's a conservative Christianity is, I mean, I'm conservative. By nature, I believe the word of God. What it says goes. I do not want to try and explain it away. It's true. God doesn't change. Uh, and I am just very simple in the fact that I believe it. However, conservatism oftentimes leads to something known as division because all of us figure out exactly what we do believe and then we figure out what someone else believes and then we find ways to distance ourselves from each other. Well, they're one of those. Uh, they took that one scripture and you know, twisted it to mean that. And so conservatism, I mean, liberalism hardly has a clue what it believes. It just knows it doesn't believe the Bible. It knows it doesn't believe Jesus. And so they specialize in what they don't believe. However, conservatives specializes in what they do believe. And as a result, we dot I's, cross T's, and divide. So let's ask the question, what matters most? In this whole affair known as Christianity, when you come up to Jesus, and so you have all sorts of potential. There's hair color, there's beard color, there's shoe size, there's fire below his waist, rainbows above his waist, all sorts of things that you can get fixated on. There's even angels surrounding him. I mean, this is a pretty incredible scene. What matters most in this scene? And I know it's sort of obvious, but it's him. You know, when he was down here on this earth, his waist downward was not a flame of fire, and upward it was not a sparkling rainbow. You know that there was no form or comeliness that would cause us to be attracted to him? He came as a simple man, and they were offended at him. So if he shows up in all his glory, are you going to be offended by that too, or trip over the fact of all the other things about his glory and miss the fact that he is? He is what it's about. Not all the entrapments, not all the details. He is what it's about. The fact that there is a flame of fire below his waist is extraordinary. But it should only cultivate a greater awe towards him. That is what you share and that is what you meditate upon. What matters most? In a time of crisis, let's say that we, we had uh, some UN troops marching on us and they had just finally declared that Christianity is a crime against humanity. And they figure that we are some of the greatest culprits in this whole affair. And they've decided that they're going to come and shut us down. Take us to prison, torture us, kill us. You know, things like that. And so this is our end. This is how it's going to finish. And we're standing in here. And we have one hour. What are we going to talk about? What are we going to do? We could enter into some good conservative debates on some different doctrinal nuance and issues. That's one option. Okay, you follow me? This is what the, this is what the persecuted church deals with constantly. It's what matters most. 
Someone comes up to you, they're about to be fed to lions, and they say, could you hearten me? Could you encourage me? Could you give me something for this challenge? What do you give them? Some doctrinal analysis? Or do you give them the power, the hope that is found in Jesus Christ? Let's be realistic here of how life works. So the Korean church. This is in the time when the Japanese had overtaken Korea. And it was a nightmare state. If you believed in Jesus, you literally, if you did not bow down to the sun god, they had the sun god in every even church. If the church did not accept the sun god in their church and have the the patrons literally, or the, the constituents, bow down to it, then those people would be thrown into prison and tortured and killed. This is, the whole culture was just under this thumb. This is in the time of Esther on Kim. If you've ever read her story, If I Perish, it's an extraordinary story. So this is a little excerpt. It's actually not a quotation. It's more of a summary. Forced to flee from their churches when they would not worship the Japanese gods, pastors, evangelists, elders, and deacons were living in mountain caves, exhorting each other, preparing for prison, praying and memorizing scripture, knowing there would be no Bibles in prison. They know that there's not going to be any Bibles in prison. So what are they doing? They're storing it away as the most precious thing they have. What are they doing? What are they spending their time doing? They're filling themselves with everything they're going to need. The word of God, Jesus Christ. So they lived off just the roots of mountain plants and water from the streams, but they remained strong and swift, traveling to villages and secretly sharing the good news. All they had were little roots they'd find in the ground, and yet these men and women were strong. It's incredible. They were living supernaturally in defiance to the Japanese and their sun god. Esther on Kim spent six years in prison witnessing to the other women and giving them hope. Many of them were killed within days of hearing her message and receiving Christ. She did not discuss complex doctrines with them, but a simple message of God's love expressed to them in the person of Jesus. She gave her food and clothes to an insane woman who was about to be executed for murdering her husband. The woman was filthy and completely out of her mind, but as Esther ministered to her and spoke to her of God's love and forgiveness, she came to know Christ and bravely went to her death ready to meet Jesus. Four things entrusted. Esther on Kim's mom lived in a time where there were no Bibles and no churches. So you wonder where someone like Esther on Kim came from who literally defied, openly defied. Everyone else bowed down and she kept standing, face turned up towards heaven. It's an amazing story. Who has the strength in this generation to do it? It's not just what you know in your head. It's who you know. And that one who you know enters into your life and gives you a courage that you would otherwise not have. And so Esther on Kim's mother, where did she come from? Well, a missionary that was there in Korea shared with her, and he didn't have any more time to talk, and he knew that he was leaving her to this corrupt government where Christians are killed. And so he entrusted her with four things. If you could share... Christianity in four things, what in the world are you going to share? This is what she was entrusted with. A Korean missionary who led a young girl, who was Esther on Kim's mother, to Christ amidst a time of horrible persecution, knowing the girl had no access to a church or Bible, he gave her four principles to live by. Jesus is the only Son of God and is the only Savior. Jesus will never forsake his believers. Jesus is able to take all the misfortunes of believers and turn them into good. Jesus hears the prayers of his children. That's it. You know what? She had a simple faith, 
as it says here, the girl grew up loving Jesus even without knowing much doctrinal specifics. And with this simple childlike faith alone, she became a pillar during the time of persecution. And her daughter, who did have a Bible, loved and cherished the word of God above everything else and gave up everything to follow Jesus. I want to be in that lineage. Whatever this is, in all its simplicity, and though it be a little more rudimentary of nature, though it have a little more of a rough-hewn edge to it, because it's more simple folk, I want it. I would rather look funny to this world and have the real thing than look all polished with all the spit and polish on me, you know, and have a little glimmer for the world. And they're like, you know, that guy's pretty impressive. At least he knows a lot. I'd rather look like a fool and an idiot and have the real thing than have a false counterfeit of the real thing and have data about Jesus and miss Jesus. Four things remembered. So this first one, let me go back to this one. This is four things entrusted. This is four things remembered. Richard Wormbrand, when he was thrown in prison, he was a pastor, so he knew a lot. But when you're in prison for 10 years and being tortured daily, their whole design is to rid you of your previous reality, is to destroy and corrupt your belief system. It's to get you to compromise. 10 straight years of torture. Not 10 days, 10 years of this. And he held on to four things. If you're going to hold on to four things, I want you to begin to go into your pantry and your soul and pick which four things you're going to hold on to. And some of those doctrinal debates on peripheral issues, you're going to begin to find aren't what you would want in a time of persecution. So this is what Richard Wormbrand says. I'd nearly forgotten my Bible in all this time. But while I was in prison, four things were always on my mind. First, there is a God. Second, Jesus is our Savior, and he goes with us everywhere, even prison. Third, no matter what we go through here, there is the reality of eternal life. And fourth, God's love, even in the face of torture, is always the best of ways. I want that. You know, I remember seeing Richard Wormbrand on a little TV screen. We're talking 22 years ago or so, and it was an old video, too. And he came up onto stage, and it was, the reason it was like a little TV screen is we had a little video recorder. My brother had a video cassette, and he goes, you have to see this, Eric. And he stuck this in, and this old man gets up onto the stage, doesn't have any shoes on because he can't walk with shoes on because his feet were so badly uh, tortured and bruised. And so he can't walk with shoes on. And he sits down on the chair on the stage and begins to talk, and there was such a palpable love in this man. I'd never seen it before. I'd always heard about the way Christians are. True, triumphant Christians. I'd never seen it. But I saw it in this man. And I remember just trembling in my soul saying, God, I don't care what it costs. I want what he has. Yet he was this old, bruised, broken up guy that didn't even speak very loud. And I would switch everything that I have to have what he had. That's how attracted I am to what I'm talking about today. My life is built around the singular pursuit of what I saw in Richard Wormbrandt all those years ago. I know what it will cost me. I expect to die a martyr. I know I'll probably be thrown in prison and tortured. I know these things. However, when I do, I want that. I want what Esther on Kim had. I want the substance of a childlike faith that says, I believe my God. And when, they, when I come up to have my head lopped off and they say, deny Christ or die. I look at them with childlike awe, and I said, are you serious? You must never have met Jesus, you poor thing. 
do you mind if I introduce him to you? Because I, I would never deny him. He's my life. And so and I'd happily die for him. But you obviously don't know him. You're screaming really loud. And love comes out in that moment instead of equal spite and hatred. Instead of self-defensiveness, you're killing the wrong guy, buddy. I love Jesus and I'm going to go to heaven. You're going to hell. That's not how you respond. That's not what comes out of you. Jesus comes out of you. Why? Because Jesus is in you. And in the times of greatest trial, what comes out of you defines the substance of your soul. What's going to come out of you right now if that trial comes on your life? Well, it might not be pretty, but it can be. And so what we do is we turn to the simplicity of Jesus as little children. We say, I I don't know what all this other stuff is. I have a lot of entrapments of Christianity, but I need Jesus. I need the substance of Christianity. I think I've shared this story before, but he's like me. It was a story that Richard Wormbrandt once shared. And that is this Romanian man was, was a pastor, and he was thrown into prison. And there was this very evil man that really hated Christianity. He was the one responsible for throwing this guy in prison. And so he'd conspired to trap him, and sure enough, this pastor gets thrown into prison. But then the bad guy, the communist bad guy that got him into prison, guess what happens to him? He falls into bad favor with the communist government, and their way of torturing him is they threw him into the very prison that he populated. So all the Christians that he'd stuck in there were in this prison cell with him. That is a very unique form of torture. And this one pastor followed him around every day and shared Jesus. Everywhere he would go. So this poor, well, no, I shouldn't say poor guy, but this, this communist bad guy's like, shut up! Finally, he just blew a, you know, his a fuse, and he was like, don't ever say anything about Jesus again. I'll give you one sentence. You tell me what you want in one sentence, and that's it. And what was his sentence? He's like me. And the man melted and gave his life to the king of kings. Can you preach that message? Because it's the simplicity of childlike faith that allows what matters most to be what comes out of you. Is it Jesus that's coming out of you? You preach the gospel with your life, not just with your words. And if you're preaching it with your life, your words only then make sense to those you're preaching to. Morse code gospel tearing. So remember what this message is. It's the simplest. You see, what we major on is what Major Ian Thomas majored on. Jesus. So your message in every situation, your answer in every situation, isn't complex theories and doctrines. It's the doctrine, Jesus and him crucified. That is your answer. By the way, that's doctrine. You want true doctrine? Get back to the word of God and to Paul. Jesus is your answer. Jesus is the only answer. So there's Richard Wormbrandt in solitary confinement. Someone starts tapping on a wall across from him, these big thick walls, and he recognizes it is, it is Morse code. And the man is dying. He's in a, in, a, in a death cell, and the man does not know Jesus. He had persecuted Christians, for all I, I know and understand. And Richard Wormbrandt on the other side begins to tap back in Morse code. What do you think he's sharing with him? Complex doctrines? He's sharing within the simplicity that is in Christ. The man was saved, changed, and then they ended up in a cell later together, and the reunion was warm in heaven come to earth. The barracks gospel. Corey Tenboom and Betsy Tenboom are thrown into a, a barracks. I think it was around 400 women in this room, smaller than this, uh, stacked like three or four women to each bunk. They had one hole in the ground for a, a toilet. 
and women would have to crawl over each other to get across the room to the toilet. People screaming, hitting each other. It was just like an all-out women's brawl. Not a very pleasant thought in my mind. And in the midst of this chaos, Corey and Betsy knew that they were placed with a light of hope. There was e- almost every single woman in there spoke a different language. There was hardly any congruency of the ability to communicate other than through spits and slaps and punches. And they had snuck in a Bible. If you've ever read The Hiding Place, it's an extraordinary story. But they'd actually, uh, God is supernaturally allowed in a Bible. And their preaching was about the love of Jesus. It was translated into, I think, like seven different languages. After they would read something, then it would be translated. But the simplicity of what they were talking about had to be maintained. If you're going to have to be translated seven times over, what are you going to share? Well, that's what you always share. In other words, what our focus is, is if it's not useful for everyone on earth, if this isn't the life and the hope and the breath of our being, why are you spending time on it? You stay focused on what matters. The gospel for the feeble-minded, the rule of thumb, if your message isn't transferable or adaptable to every culture, every situation, every mental capacity, then something is wrong with your message. When I speak to adults, I speak to adults. When I speak to children, I speak to children. However, what I'm speaking to adults, if it cannot be translated and adapted to children, something's wrong with my message. In other words, children can grow up to understand certain nuance. However, if I can't take what I'm preaching here and take it to Afghanistan, and they're like, well, that only works in America. Something's wrong with what I'm speaking. If I can't take it to North Korea and say, yeah, well, if I was in America, I could do that. Something's wrong with my message. Jesus is available in North Korea. He's portable. However, certain things are not. It must be good for the man about ready to die, the child suffering from an illness, the Down syndrome girl, the street child in Brazil, the simple, the mentally challenged. So, for the rest of this time, let's start talking about the narrow way. You guys have heard of the narrow way. The word is thlebo. That means narrow. And do you know what narrow means? To press as grapes. By the way, if you were a grape and you were being pressed, what would be happening to you? Mm-hmm. That's narrow. Press hard upon, a compressed way, a way of trouble, affliction, and distress. And God tells us ahead of time, he says, the way is narrow. Fewer those who find it. One of my commentaries is always, yeah, fewer those who want to find it. The way is narrow. It's not broad. The way is narrow. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about a little hallway. To that which matters. And yet there's all sorts of doors off that hallway that are beckoning us. And little clowns poke their head out and say, ah, you know, they blow a kazoo and say, come on in here. Constantly attempting to beguile us and get us off that which is narrow. But that which is narrow, it's interesting. As we walk down this hall, it seems like the two sides of the hall are continually moving more and more in. And as a result, we want out of the narrow way. Do you know that what I'm saying today makes me look ignorant? It does. Now, you're probably very gracious to me. However, I know what I'm saying, and I know what it sounds like. And I'm purposely saying it. I get asked a lot about certain doctrinal quagmire issues. You know that I have very clear beliefs on all these things. It's not like I don't know about them or I don't understand them. My entire goal in the church of Jesus Christ is to say, hey people, focus. There's doors that pop open with the kazoo and the clown and they're constantly trying to get us off course. However, everything that matters is solved in Jesus Christ. 
And I mean it. Jesus is the solution to every one of these doctrinal disputes and conflagrations. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Narrow is this way that you are on, which leads unto life. And few there be that find it. So do you want life? Who is life? Well, the way, the truth, and the life. Not only is truth a person, life is a person. The way to that life, the way to Jesus, is a narrow way. Yeah. Welcome to Ellerslie. We're going to learn about the narrow way. I tell you what, I love this stuff. Big smiles on my face, leap for joy all the time. I'm the happiest person you'll ever meet on planet Earth. There's no downside to this. And I can say narrow without you know, starting to break out into a cold sweat and go, oh, no, what did I get myself into? I can't tell them to do it too. I mean, what kind of love is that? Jesus is what this is about. And if you want to go after Jesus, we're going to point you to Jesus this semester. He is your answer. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Listen to Paul. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So if we were to ask Paul, okay, Paul, what matters most? What he's given us here is a north star for your compass. This is the number one hermeneutic that you can ever use. A hermeneutic is the tool you use or the framework you use to approach scripture. So when you look at a scripture, you say, huh, why did God write this scripture? What is this scripture for? Well, I know it is useful for training in righteousness. I know it's useful for doctrine. I know all these things about it, but what is it about? What is it for? It's for Jesus. It's for his glory. And what it clarifies, every scripture in the Bible clarifies more perfectly the person of Jesus Christ. We'll show you that this semester. Everything in the Bible is about Jesus. By the way, he's the word of God made flesh. Everything. You know, the book of Leviticus? Yeah, Jesus. Song of Solomon? Mm, yeah, strangely. Jesus? It's about Jesus. All the way to the end. The whole thing points to him. You see, there's this narrow channel, and the whole thing points to Jesus and him crucified. It's Jesus and what Jesus did. You see, you could know about Jesus, but if no one ever tells you what he did... It's, you sort of miss a key factor in that. And you could say, why doesn't Paul say Jesus and him crucified, died, resurrected, ascended, and then his spirit poured out? Why doesn't he say that? Because if you understand the cross, the rest of it comes with it. You see, when you understand the cross, you understand the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and the outpoured spirit. You see, what the cross purchased was all of that. So Jesus and him crucified is the North Star. Every single one of us, get out your spiritual compass and fix it to Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what matters. This is the central defining element of the entire Bible. It isn't five points of this or five points of that. It's Jesus and him crucified. That's our grid. That is the worldview through which we look. That is the lens at which we approach the scriptures with. Oh, so we have a little guy at the bottom and a cross at the top. So this is what we could call the narrow way. Now, there's a lot of room off to the right and the left that I'm going to start to fill up here with all sorts of noise, clowns with kazoos. But what you see is a man enters onto the narrow way in and through Jesus and him crucified. You know what he finds at the end of the journey too? Jesus and him crucified. You know what that entire journey, the more he seeks Jesus and him crucified, the more he begins to understand Jesus 
and him crucified, the more awe and child wonder he has about the fact that everything in the entire Bible is about Jesus and him crucified. I know that sounds utterly simplistic, but that's the way it is. Just wait. It's extraordinary. Okay, so the singular focus of a simplitist. Listen to Paul. Now, you're going to notice that Paul is not going into the right territory or the left territory. He's staying very central. And he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb. Why? That I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him. What's Paul's goal? What's he about? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. You just heard Paul's great statement on the matter. This is what he's about. Why why are you on earth, Paul? Well, I just told you. This is what I'm after. Who's he after? He's after a person. He's not after the doctrinal nuance and facts about that person. When you go after the person, you know that Paul knows a lot more data and facts about Jesus than any of us? Probably all of us put together. And yet, this was his goal. This is the focus of his being. So now let's fill in that narrow way. Jesus and him crucified. And so at the very top, you see that I may win Christ and go down to the second one, that I may be found in Jesus, that I may know Jesus, that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And that's Jesus and him crucified. So when you make that your focus, that is what your mind is fixed upon. Think on these things, says Paul. And it's not all these other distractions in this world. It's things that are noble, pure, upright, good. You see, this is what we think on. Jesus. Jesus is what we think on. Jesus and the work of Jesus. And as a result, what flows out of our life is Jesus. And when we encounter someone, what do they get? They get Jesus. And so we begin to fulfill the law simply by loving Jesus. And then his love begins to fill us, and then the outflow of that is people begin to be changed. And our message is Jesus. And yes, I recognize that that sounds a little too oversimplistic and non-practical in this life. I do still get up and brush my teeth. I still do eat breakfast. I did this morning. And you can say, yeah, but you're not including that in there. I mean, you have to think about those things. Yes, but in the grand picture of your life, what is your life about? Every moment needs to be infused, like injected, with the reality of why you're here and what you're doing here. Rightly handling the word of God. So Paul says to Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm going to give you another little picture of the narrow way. Now, you're going to have the white down the middle, and then you have these two green slices. Okay, And we're going to call that good territory, safe territory. Territory that actually helps keep us in focus, in singularity of focus on Jesus Christ. Uh, On the left, you're going to see examine the word. And on the right, you're going to see the word believe the word. Okay, there's... Now, as we progress in this, you're going to notice that to the left, you guys know what politically left means? Liberal. To the right, conservative. Okay, now, this is healthy. So if you wanted to call it healthy liberalism and healthy conservatism, this would be it. Okay, now, what we have on the left is examine the word. Examining the word is applying it with questions, looking at it and studying it. 
Well, to a liberal, when they begin to over-question and analyze and question everything, the existence of God is now questioned. Okay? And so what started out as a very good thing, and that's examining scripture, suddenly becomes something very dangerous and bad. On the other side, as a child, you just believe it. God said it. And then what happens is there can be a fixation on what he said. Instead of serving the one who wrote the word, you end up serving the words themselves. And the words themselves become your great priority. The text actually takes a preeminence over the person. So on the left, you'll see it says, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. That's the Bereans. In that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And so they were constantly saying, is this so? Is this true? They wanted to know the answer to these questions, so they sought it out in the word of God. And that is still maintaining a very narrow, simplistic mentality to say, no, this is about Jesus. Is this true? And so there's all sorts of good questions that can be asked still within a territory that enhances your focus on Jesus Christ. On the other side, you see it says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually works also in you that believe. So on this side, we actually have a simple childlike trust. That's the word of God. I believe it. So we have examining the word and believing the word, and both of those actually enable us to stay focused on that which is true and right. And it actually serves our soul unto the ends of more and more Jesus. So examining as the Bereans, I'm going to use a term, taking responsibility. It's a dangerous one in Christianity, because if you say taking responsibility, it's like, wait a minute, are you saying that God doesn't do everything? Are you saying that humans have a responsibility? Well, yeah, of course we do. In other words, to diminish the fact that we have responsibility is to live in cuckoo land. It doesn't even make sense practically. How in the world am I supposed to function? I'm I'm not supposed to do anything. God has to pick me up and move me around. And so I am responsible when the word of God comes to me or when someone preaches something, anything you hear at Ellerslie, you have a responsibility to test it. Not to question the existence of God because I bring something up, but to test that which I am saying. It doesn't mean you have to be a cynic and say, I doubt that's true. What you do is you heat it, but before you imbibe it and drive it down into the depths of your soul and build your life around it, you come to Scripture and you test it against Scripture. You say, Spirit of God, lead me. I want truth. Don't lean your confidences on Eric Ludy or any other teacher here at Ellerslie. Lean your confidence upon the Word of God, upon the Spirit of God. You see, if I violate the Word of God in any way, I'm wrong. Not the Spirit of God and not the truth of Scripture. I'm wrong. So... The Bereans took responsibility. And so on the left here, sorry this is small for you, examining the word. Well, how about the trustworthiness of Scripture? Are the Scriptures trustworthy? You know that there's nothing wrong with that question, and that question could actually lead you to health? You know that you have to know the answer to that? You see, I could just start by saying, of course, they're trustworthy. And you could say, well, Eric said it. And yet what I want you to know is it's okay to say, God, I need to know that I can build my life around this. Right now, I trust that I can, but could you continue to reinforce that? You don't go to doubt. You don't doubt the trustworthiness of Scripture. You start with a childlike trust. God built this book. He knows what he's doing. However, you say, reinforce it. And you know that when you study Scripture, you begin to know the supernatural nature of Scripture? And do you know that your confidence in Scripture grows even as you study it? This book is supernatural in every regard. And suddenly, you have more confidence in the trustworthiness of it than you ever have before At Ellerslie, we go through all sorts of different messages on the pedigree, on the basis of Scripture, and why we believe it. It's exciting. 
The divinity of Jesus Christ is Jesus God. Well, if you listen to the Arian heresy, they say, well, you know, Jesus is like God. He's sort of approved of God, but he's not actually God. He's a man that pleases God. You know, that type of notion where you don't need to overstate it and make him God. Jesus is God. However, to actually come to Scripture and ask the question, is Jesus God? Spirit of God, prove it to me. Show it to me. You're hungry to know, and guess what Scripture will answer back? You better believe it, he is. In other words, these are safe questions. It's not a bad thing to ask, but be watchful of where it takes you. If you continue to press forward in this left side of the equation, you can very quickly become a doubter and a cynic, and ultimately a liberal, who actually denies the existence of God. And so what we need to do is walk a narrow way. The third one down is the power of the shed blood of Christ. What did the cross purchase? Ask the scriptures that question. What did the cross purchase? You know the scripture has an answer for that? You know that God is not afraid of any of your questions? Resurrection life. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Some people may say he doesn't, but read scripture. What does it say? Because scripture can't lie. And if he rose from the dead in scripture, in the scriptural account, guess what? That's good enough for a child of the faith. The authority of Christ. Where is Jesus right now? It's an interesting question. What does the Bible say? Is he dead? Is he buried somewhere? Is his body just rotting? No, he's risen from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is seated in the position of all authority, and everything is under his feet. You see, when you ask the right questions, you actually come to a conclusion that says, wait a minute, he is in a position of all authority, and I am in him. Whoa, that means I am in him at the right hand of the Father, in a position. So when I pray in his name, I pray with all authority? Uh huh. You see, this is what happens with child wonder. You still know the answers to these questions. It's not ignorance that reigns. Truth reigns in the heart of one who simply comes to God with a child wonder. So believing as a child, let's go to the other side of this equation now. Placing your confidence firmly in the word. So the first one, the Bereans, was you take responsibility. This one is you place your confidence firmly in God and in his word. What he says goes. And this is one of the most important dimensions of your spiritual life. So look at the, the right side. We have all sorts of issues, all sorts of doors that can lead you to all sorts of studies. They're not bad. You'll see that they crisscross into this green territory. For instance, we have cosmology, or the study of origins and beginnings. We have eschatology, the study of what is to come, the ending. We have theology, the study of all things pertaining to God. Soterology, the study of salvation. Etiquetology, which I made up as far as a word. The study of moral excellence and appropriate behavior. And powerology, I made that one up too. The study of endowment and expected evidences of indwelling grace. Okay, so, I mean, at the top, you're dealing with creationism versus evolution. Uh, eschatology, you're dealing with, oh, how many are there now of end-time worldviews and perspectives that you could uh, be debating? Theology, well, that's a loaded one. Soterology, this is the study of salvation, typically understood as Calvinism versus Arminianism. However, there are more. Eticatology, the study of moral excellence and appropriate behavior. How many opinions do you think there are in the conservative world on that? Powerology, the study of endowment and expected evidences of indwelling grace. How about is our tongues for the church today? Okay, can you just imagine if I brought up that and started uh, howling right now? In other words, there is a lot of bait here. However, those are real issues. Are they bad? No. They're biblical issues, which is why they are sponsored in the church in the first place. It's part of the hallway. However, 
We have to be very watchful because there's a bait to make them a focus instead of an accouterment to our strength and our focus on Jesus Christ. The beguiling, taking the attention off center. The enemy's game is to remove us from the narrow hallway. He wants to remove us from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that is what Paul's concern is. That is what he feared, is that we would be beguiled as Eve was and be turned from the tree of life onto the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that we would be wooed out of the narrow corridor of what matters most, and that is a person. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, but I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve, see, he's very good at this, through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Oh, no. Introducing the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's really interesting, because the Bible has two different kinds of folk in the religious system, by the way, and they both represent two polar opposites, and they represent the beguiling. Guess who killed Jesus? The Sadducees and the Pharisees. And yet, weren't they the leaders of Israel, the very ones who Jesus promised to come to and deliver and save? They're the ones expecting the Messiah. And yet, when the Messiah came, They were in their camps, they were in their rooms, and they closed in that narrow way, actually killed the Savior. What? What a strange thing. Well, guess what will kill the simplicity that is in Christ today? You know, the world out there doesn't like Christianity, but that's not your issue. You know that Jesus wasn't killed by the Romans, even though you could say, yes, he was, technically, he was on a Roman cross. The Romans had no interest in Jesus. It was the religious leaders of the day That killed Jesus Christ. And their names were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were termed by Jesus a generation of vipers in Matthew 3.7. And then a wicked and adulterous generation in Matthew 16.4. Then in Matthew 23, Jesus tags them as hypocrites, blind, and whitewashed tombs. Let it suffice to say, since I'm not going to be able to go into it at great levels today. Jesus was not a fan of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So, what is the bait? It wasn't actual leaven, like Pharisees and Sadducees had actual yeast and they were throwing it around and like, Oh no, that's from a Sadducee. I can't get that on me. It wasn't talking about leaven. That's what's funny is the disciples are like, Leaven? Yeast? Do they have some? I need to be aware of it. And then finally, at the end of this, in verse 12, they're like, oh, he's not talking about yeast. He's talking about their doctrine. You see, the religious leaders of that day have a doctrine. But their doctrine was wooing into two camps. The conservative and the liberal. And they were at odds one with the other. The Republicans and the Democrats. You ever notice that there's two There's two polar opposites. And both of them, let's be honest, we look at both, and even though we might lean right, we look at it and we're like, what in the world's wrong with these people? There's just as much corruption in both. And yes, I believe more in the ideas or the ideology of one side, but I don't want to endorse their character and the politicking and the mudslinging. This is anything but the nature of God. What do you think it was like in Israel when Jesus shows up? You see, Jesus walked a narrow way. It's called the way. 
It's the life of Jesus. Do you know where you are? You're in the way. You know, that's what early Christianity was called, the way. The liberal perversion, <clears throat> the Sadducees. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him. Remember what I said that left side of the equation is? Examining, questioning. Well, who's questioning? Well, the Sadducees are very good at questioning. They doubt everything. I mean, can't you just see the Son of God is sitting right in front of you? Oh, no, not the Sadducees. They're way too distracted in their high minds and their ability to ask questions and to doubt everything that the Holy Scriptures has ever said. They denied the resurrection, which was their great splitting point with the Pharisees. The slippery slope of liberalism. First, it starts out with this, seeking clarification. So let's talk about the Bible, just as an illustration. What is this book? Why should I trust it? Who wrote it? Okay, now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this, but this is a slippery slope. In other words, at the very beginning, if you're truly genuine and authentic, and you're humble before scriptures, and you approach as a child, guess what? This won't swallow you up. But you could actually come to scripture humble and like a child, and you will find the answer. Isn't that God isn't intimidated by liberal questioning? He doesn't break down and start sobbing. Oh, boy, these guys have me in a corner. He's not at all intimidated. However, what starts out as seeking clarification ends up with asking questions, which, again, isn't bad, but listen to the tone here. What you're lacking is a humility, and what you're lacking is a child wonder. You're lacking faith. Well, who decided what books should be included? Why wasn't the book of Judas included? Wasn't it written by men and not by God? See, I'm actually not offended by these questions. If you have these questions, I'd love to walk through them. In other words, they're very easy to answer. However, what's happening is there's a slippery slope, and you have to be very watchful not to lose your traction. Because where this leads, confusion and budding cynicism. What about these contradictions? Are there really flaws in this book? Is it really God's word? Are you sure it is trustworthy? Now, I could pepper these things with all sorts of statements. This is the enemy, known as Satan, who is saying, God doesn't want you to know something. You see, he told you, you see, God had a clear word on the matter. He said, do not eat of that fruit or that tree. The day in which you do, you will surely die. And then what does Satan say? Are you sure you can trust his word? You see, I happen to know information you don't know. And that is that this tree can make you as he is. He doesn't want you to know that. So what he's doing is he's creating a fog and a confusion. He's wooing Eve away. He's beguiling Eve. And what Paul was concerned about is that just as Eve was beguiled from the simplicity that is in the tree of life. You know the tree of life was sitting in the middle of the garden too? You know that if they ate of it, they could live forever? And they went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one that would kill them. Doesn't this sound like our life? That's a summary of us. And they went to that tree. You see, the enemy wants to beguile you. There's a, very, there's a tree of life sitting in front of you today. And yet there's branches from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil sticking into this hallway with fruit hanging off of it. As you're walking down this hall, Jesus says, keep your eyes fixed. Don't be beguiled. So this leads to confusion and budding cynicism. cynicism and then suddenly doubt begins to have a soil in which it can grow. And doubt, by the way, in Scripture is known as sin. Did God really say this? By the way, that's a quotation from the Bible. And the one who originally said it, its name is Lucifer, the serpent, Satan. That's his famous quote. The answer from the Christian, yes, he did. That's child wonder. 
God said it. He didn't stutter. So the answer is yes, Satan. God did say it. And then what's the final thing? Unbelief. There isn't really a God. You see, what happens is a slippery slope. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. You just need to be very watchful in your soul that there is a childlike wonder that you trust your God at the very core of your existence. So let's look at this. What we have is that green. Do you remember that green line I had in there before? And I talked about that's the Bereans. That actually is healthy. There's nothing wrong with it. But the line starts to get a little more light greenish. In other words, the grass is not watered as well here. So you have to be watchful. It's still fine territory to walk in and to ask questions and to seek out answers. However, then it starts to die. And then you have confusion and budding cynicism. And then you have a big red line called doubt. And then where does that leave you? Liberalism, a.k.a. unbelief. Now look at the very top line. It used to say examine the word. Now it says doubt the word. What they specialize in is doubting the word. That's like their great skill. Make sure it's not your great skill. For those that struggle with the Sadducean itch, there's some of you in here that lean more towards devil's advocacy, where you always have to ask a question. But what about this? But what about this? Just be watchful of that. Okay? I'm not saying it's bad to ply things with questions. Just be watchful. The rule of thumb is God always has an answer. Always. If you have a question about scriptural truth, the remedy is to trust with childlike faith that God planted that question in your heart and mind, and he desires to answer it. This has always been my rule of thumb. If I ever have a question about Scripture, you know where I go? To Scripture. I go to God. I say, well, you're the one that gave me the question. You know that you don't naturally have interest in the Bible? You don't naturally have interest in God and want to know about him? The enemy's not sponsoring that. Do you think there's a God? You should go seek that out. That's God. And so when you have a God question in you, it's a guaranteed slam dunk that God wants to answer that. So just go to him. He would love to answer your questions. And he is not intimidated by your questions. The Bible is safe. He's not afraid you're going to open up to this one verse. Oh, no, he found that one verse that I didn't want him to see. There is not one verse in Scripture that he's embarrassed by, that he gets red-faced over and goes, oh, no, they got me. The conservative perversion. Oh, no, not the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. Don't you feel bad? Because probably... All of us in here are conservative in our bent. And we get lumped in with the Pharisees. Well, you don't have to be. Jesus wasn't liberal or conservative. He was Jesus. He's truth. He doesn't have a bent. He is the truth. He's what both sides seem to go haywire off of. But they need to conform around him. Now, I naturally, by the way, am conservative. Just in my bearing. My family was conservative in their bearing. And I'm bearing in my thinking and my reasoning. I don't just question things because it sounds fun. I believe things as a natural course. And so when the Bible says it, I just have a tendency to say, yeah, it's God that said it. You blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. That's the Pharisees he's talking to there. You see, what do they do? What are they famous for? Famous for making contentions over small verbiage. Oh, it says this here in the, in the law and in the Torah. And they make rules, elaborate rules. They make systems of thought. And Jesus came in and literally stomped on those systems. Held them in complete disregard. You see, they strained at a gnat and swallowed a camel. They're all concerned about all dotting every I and crossing every T. And what did they do? Killed the Son of God. May we learn from their mistake and not repeat it. 
The slippery slope of conservatism. Isn't it fascinating to think that there's a slippery slope in conservatism? Most of you would have thought, oh yeah, with liberalism, definitely a slippery slope. Well, may we open our eyes to the slippery slope of conservatism. It starts with thirsting for knowledge. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. But what stream are you going to to quell and slack your thirst? How is this whole thing going to end? Oh, I'm using the illustration of eschatology, which is end times. Okay? So how is this whole thing going to end? What does God say about the end times? Those are good questions. You want to know? God would love you to know. He's not against you understanding what it says in Scripture. But be watchful of where this leads you. Just make sure you keep your focus on that which is center. Maturing and understanding. So now, first of all, it was a thirst for knowledge, but now you're starting to wrap your mind around this whole thing. And pride has a way of creeping in. Because now you're looking at all the ignorance of all those around you who haven't studied it out like you have. I think I'm grasping some key truths about the end, the second coming, the judgment, the thousand years, the lake of fire, etc., For some reason, God seemed to overlook the fact that he didn't include a formal systematic eschatological position statement in the word of God. Hmm. But that doesn't mean I can't write one up for myself. Now, I'm not saying this is dangerous. I'm saying it can be. In other words, for instance, I have opinions about eschatology. However, you'll notice at Ellerslie that isn't what it's about. That isn't where we focus. It isn't what we discuss. It isn't what we debate. Because eschatology, by the way, in a very simple nutshell, who is the first and the last? Who is the beginning and the ending? Who is the alpha and the omega? Who is the end? You want to study end times? It's a person. It's more of Jesus. If you don't like Jesus now, you're not going to want to be with him in the end. If you do like him now, guess what? Good news. He's going to be around. And he'll always be around. Eschatology is based on a person, not a system of thought. Number three, distraction with peripherals. So now here's where we get into the yellow territory. We were green, then we went light green. You know, we need a little more water over here. And then, uh uh-oh, some dying grass. Distraction with peripherals. If I could fully wrap my mind around all these details of eschatology and figure out a way in which to articulate it to my generation, I would be a useful tool in the hand of God. There are so many differing opinions. It would be good for me to delineate what is wrong with each of the other views in order for me to be better prepared to defend my own. Do you see the bait here? Now, mainly it's going to be men that struggle with this, by the way. However, this is a huge bait amongst conservative Christians today. Everyone is beginning to study and figure out all the nuance of these things and then begin to posture themselves for the up-and-coming debates Because they know they're entering into a firestorm with other conservatives. And so instead of standing shoulder to shoulder, back to back, and fighting for Jesus and him crucified, what are we doing? We have contention. Number four, entering into contention over peripherals. By the way, I'm saying peripherals. These are not the center. It's not Jesus and him crucified. It's not the essence of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. You start messing with certain things about Jesus... You'll get a rise out of me instantaneously, and I will contend with you. You don't start telling me that it's a ruse that he rose from the dead. You'll find out that I will not take that sitting down. Okay? In other words, I will contend, but on majors, on the things that matter most, on the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. But you're not going to see me break up the church over tongues. Because the, the fruit of the Spirit, if you want to get down to it of what the chief fruit is in the Bible, it's love. That's the evidence of a believer, not if they speak in tongues. 
Is tongue scriptural? Absolutely it is. But it's rife for debate. It's rife for division. And it's peripheral. For those of you that don't think it's peripheral, that's an offensive statement. Uh, There are quite a few ignorant folk out there that are not teaching eschatology correctly. This is quite upsetting, and there is a definite need for rebuke in this matter. It really bothers me that my Sunday school class wouldn't allow me to teach my views in class this morning. I'm starting to question the integrity of my whole church over this issue. If they can't get their eschatology correct, then I cannot trust that anything else they are teaching is correct. You begin to see the breakdown in the conservatism. What is it leading towards? It's leading towards division. Conservatives specialize in division as much as liberals specialize in unbelief. That is our great sin. We do not heed scripture on that point. And by the way, Paul is very clear on that point. That, we, that the fruit of the flesh, when it mentions it, eris, contention, striving, is actually a fruit of the flesh and is an evidence that the Spirit of God is not a part of this. Number five, where does it lead? Separation over peripherals. Well, have you ever heard of denominations? I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Some of us in here have said that quite a few times. Because, now, if it's a central issue, I don't blame you. I would tell you to leave too. However, let's be watchful of how we're handling these things. I'm out of here. Ignorance is reigning in my church. People aren't interested in talking about the significance and importance of true biblical eschatology. And I've even been asked to stop promoting it in and amongst my church body. If there ever was a reason to separate, this is it. And I would say to this poor guy, buddy, you've lost your way. You see, you're so focused on a side issue that you've lost the center. This is not about eschatology. It's about Jesus and him crucified. Your eschatology was not a problem until it consumed you, until it became the focal point of your existence. Eschatology isn't the problem. It's the fixation on it. Any more than asking questions is the problem. You see, there's a healthy dimension to both of these instincts we have as humans in our, development as, in, our, in our development as Christians. But we must be watchful to not be beguiled from the center. So here's our picture for conservatism. So first we thirst for knowledge. Then the lighter green is maturing and understanding. And then the third is distraction with peripherals. And the fourth is entering into contention over peripherals. And then look at our final statement. Conservatism, a.k.a. denominationalism. We know where we stand, we know what defines us, and we know why we don't like them. And so when we talk with others, what do we do? We criticize all the others and all the other viewpoints. And so, what we have is a morass today in Christianity to the point where it's very confusing for those of you that have been born into this generation. However, I'm inviting you back. I don't care what denomination you come from. I would like to send you back to it. I'm not trying to convert you to a different denomination called simplitism. I want you to take your childlike wonder and stick it back into every denomination today. I want you to be a Christian in the midst of other Christians. And I want, to help, I want you to help them see the cross. I want you to invite them to the bridegroom. I want you to say to them, put down the notepad and get to know him. Then, guess what? Your notepad will be filled even when you're not trying You'll know all about him. You'll know everything you need to know. Oh, by the way, up there at the top, it says systematize the word. I'm not against systematizing, necessarily. I'm not against organizing thought. We have to be very watchful of how we do it. Because what happens is we systematize theology, 
and we have what's called a systematic theology. And then what we do is we get taught a systematic theology before we get taught the Word of God. So then when we come to the Word of God, what do we come to the Word of God with? A systematic theology. And so we interpret everything through our systematic theology instead of through Jesus and Him crucified. And as a result, even though we love the Word of God, and even though we want to know the Word of God, and even though we esteem Jesus Christ, we are spurning Jesus Christ in and through something that isn't bad in and of itself, but it has an unhealthy place in the process. Oh, by the way, at the very top it says Pharisees, just in case you missed that. For those who struggle with the Pharisaical itch, that's me. I don't struggle with the liberal itch. I would, cons- I would struggle with the conservative itch. And I would say most of us in here, yeah, I would say a higher percentage of us are going to struggle to be Pharisees and not necessarily Sadducees. And so we don't just cluck our tongues at the Sadducees and say, you guys are idiots. We're right. And meanwhile, we're crucifying the Son of God as well. There was one thing that the Sadducees and the Pharisees agreed on. Jesus needs to die. Isn't that a fascinating statement? That's their uniting point. I desperately want to be one who builds his life around Jesus. And yet I do not want to promote ignorance. I know what this can sound like. And I know what those that want to find some fault in what I'm saying will try and feed on and build. They'll try and say that Eric is not esteeming the human mind, that he is not giving it its proper due, that God gave us a mind so that we could study these things and know these things. I spend my entire week studying. That's what I do. I study the Word of God. I spend more time in the Word of God than probably most people on earth today. It is not the absence of using my mind. It's the focal point of how I'm approaching Scripture. I'm approaching Scripture to know Jesus. And so as a result, when I preach, I am preaching for you to know Jesus. For you to stay focused on Jesus. Every scripture is supposed to lead us to Jesus. Because that's who it's about. So for those who struggle with the pharisaical itch, the rule of thumb, stay focused on Jesus. No matter how intriguing or factual your study may be, if it leads you away from a simple abiding trust and fellowship with Jesus Christ, don't follow the bait. Sit at Christ's feet and you can be certain that as you study his word, you, with Christ at the center of your studies, you will never fail for lack of knowledge or understanding on any matter. When you make Jesus your focus, do you know that I do not struggle with odd questions? You know, sort of like, what about your eschatology? If you don't figure this out, Eric, then when Jesus returns, you'll be lost. I have perfect peace and confidence in the eschatological dimension of my existence. I have perfect peace and confidence in my soteriological position. Though there are a lot of people that don't have a confidence in my soteriological position, as is evidenced with the questions that I get, because there's certain people that accuse me of being a hyper-Calvinist. And for all the Calvinists in here, you say, really? And then I get accused of being the hyper-Armenianist. Obviously, depending on which side you're at, because you have to be one or the other. So if you're not like me, you must be the other. And so as a result, and of course hyper has to be associated with it, just to rub it in a little. And I would say, look, that's not even the way I function. All the great Christian men and women through the ages that I respect kept the center upon Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what I esteem. That's what I want to become in my full-grown maturity as a Christian. I want to resemble Jesus, showcase Jesus. I want your final statement in the life of Eric to be not just what I spoke about, 
but what I lived out. I want you to see Jesus. I want to give you Jesus. I want to introduce you to Jesus. I want you to walk away from here not thinking about me, but thinking about him. That's a life well lived. The narrow way. The simplicity that is in Christ is always under siege. What I am actually challenging you towards is not the easy way. It's called the narrow way. So here's our picture. Liberalism from one side, conservatism from the other. If you try and maintain a simplicity, what happens? You're squeezed like a grape. Speaking from personal experience, you know how hard it is for me to keep this simple perspective here at Ellerslie. You'd think that everyone would just say, praise God, Eric, for a childlike notion towards Scripture just to keep it simple. Oh, no. No, no. It doesn't work that way. There are two different sides that want to press this point constantly. However, instead of doubting the word or systematizing the word, let's stay focused on the word. Let's reverence the word. Let's know the word in person, not just in text. The simplest's motto Jesus is the answer, dot, 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 for everything. What about my drug addiction? Uh, Jesus. What about my wrecked marriage? Jesus. What about my past abuse? Jesus. What about my financial mistakes? Jesus. What about my anger problem? Jesus. What about my fear, my anxiety, my lust, my pride, my greed, my self-pity, my dark thoughts, my addictions, my inordinate affections, my paranoia, my obsessions? You see, when I come and we say we sat down and you said these things to me, I wouldn't be flippant in my response. I really would walk you through this. I wouldn't just throw a word at you and say, Jesus, go to him. I would lead you to him. In other words, it's not a flippant answer, however, it's still the answer. My answer is still going to be Jesus. And when you summarize everything I told you, you'd say, well, I guess, yeah. It really was. It was Jesus was the answer. You see, if I'm a sheep, and there's another sheep that's bleeding next to me because he keeps getting eaten by the wolves, what solution am I going to give him? The shepherd. You see, the shepherd's your only protection from the wolves. Now, I could give him all sorts of other things, and I could say, here, I'll hold you. Put my hoof over him. We bat together. But I'm not actually helping that sheep. If I want to help that sheep, I say, there's only one solution for you. Let me lead you to him. Here, come stand with me in the shadow of the shepherd. Let's nuzzle up against his ankle. See, this is where we're safe. You know that the wolves can't touch you here? You know that this shepherd will heal your hoof? You know he'll take that thorn out of your side? You know that this is your solution? His name is Jesus. A simplest's childlike faith. This is what we believe. Jesus is the key that unlocks, well, everything. You see, no matter what mystery there is, whether it's a soterological mystery, an eschatological mystery, a cosmological mystery, you know who solves it? Jesus. He's like a key. You stick Jesus into that mystery and guess what? Oh, it all makes sense. You know the Old Testament was a mystery to the Jews? They didn't understand it. In fact, they talked about that. This is a mystery. It's too great for us. And guess who came along and unlocked it? Jesus. Which is why you understand the Old Testament better than most Jews. They know the words of it better than you do, probably. However, you can actually understand its meaning. In Isaiah 53, you can read it and see the cross. In Psalm 22, when they pierced his hands and his feet and divided his garments, 
cast lots for his clothing, guess what? You say, oh, that's Jesus. You see, you see it because you have Jesus. They don't see it because they don't have the key. Take the key. What we do is we take the key of Jesus, and in our study of Scripture, we stick that key into every passage. And what does it unlock? It unlocks Jesus. Cosmology, the study of origins and beginnings. Well, stick Jesus into it. He is the beginning. He is the creator. It's a person. Who was there? He was. You want to study it? Go to him. Who knows about it? He does. If you want to understand the beginning of all things, if you want to understand cosmology, who do you need to know? Jesus, the creator. It just makes sense, I know. However, be watchful. I'm not against creationism. Guess what? I'm a big fan of it. However, don't get swallowed up in a debate of just creationism and lose the simplicity that is in Christ. Is it worthy of taking a stand for? You better believe it. Every single one of these things I'm going to tell you about is worthy of that stand. But make sure you don't lose your focus in the process. Oops. Eschatology, the study of what is to come, the ending. Well, who is the end? He is. It's a person. Theology, the study of all things pertaining to God. Well, he is God. Soterology, the study of salvation. He is the Savior. It's a person. Eticatology, the study of moral excellence and appropriate behavior. He is our moral behavior. He is our righteousness. He is the perfection of moral behavior. And he clothes us with his righteousness. Powerology, the study of endowment and the expected evidences of indwelling grace. Well, introducing grace itself. It's a person. It's not just a movement or a force. It's a person that comes and dwells inside of you and enables you to live a life that otherwise could not be lived. The simplest discipline. Jesus is the entire point of everything. Of every moment, of every minute, hour, day, week, month, and year, of every discussion, of every downtime, of every uptime, of every study, of every thought, of every conjecture, of every brainstorm, of every action, of every coming and going, of every meeting. Listen to this last one. And of every sermon. If there is a sermon that is not about Jesus and him crucified, what is the use of that sermon? Where is it leading us? What is it leading us to? When we as Christians come together, what are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. He is the sole focus of our existence. So I wanted to finish with this. This is a quote that uh, I use in a different message called Christophany that Ben Zorns found for me when I was about to give that message. And it's just great. A great way to finish this message. So Charles Spurgeon is describing this scene where this older man who had discipled a young pastor. And this young pastor was getting up to give one of his sermons. I don't know if it was his first sermon or if he, you know, somewhat seasoned, but the older man was out there in the audience listening. And so you can just sort of feel what the younger pastor was feeling. It's like his mentor is out there and he wants to do a really good job for him. And so this is where we start. Upon finishing his sermon, the young man went to the old pastor to ask him how he had done. Uh, what do you think of my sermon, sir? He asked. It's a very poor sermon indeed, he said. Uh, poor sermon, said the young man. It took me a long time to study it. Aye, no doubt. Why then do you say it was poor? Did you not think my explanation of the text to be accurate? Oh, yes, said the old preacher. Very correct indeed. Well, then why do you say it's a poor sermon? Didn't you think the metaphors were appropriate and the arguments conclusive? Yes, they were very good as far as that goes, but still it was a very poor sermon. Will you tell me why you think it was a poor sermon? Because, he said, there was no Christ. Well, the young man said, Christ was not in the text. We are not to be preaching Christ always. We must preach what's in the text. So the old man said, don't you know, young man, 
that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. Ah, said the old preacher. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures. That is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you go to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? And then preach a sermon running along that road towards the great metropolis, Christ. And he said, I have never yet found a text that had no such road. I will make a road. I would go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master. For a sermon is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill unless there is a savor of Christ in it. Isn't that exciting? This is Father's Day. And some of you could say, what about the father? You didn't mention the father. You know what the father says? You exalt the son and I get glory. You know, when all is said and done, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And it says, unto the glory of the Father. When we exalt the Son, we're giving our Father in heaven a Father's Day gift. And so today at Ellerslie, let's exalt the Son. And by doing it, let's pay tribute unto our Father who gave him to us, who gave us a solution for our life who solved every dimension of our existence. Every problem is quelled in him. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.